Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Nick at Night Show. We've got a lot of fun pl planned for you this evening. Uh, let's see. First of all, let me give you the numbers you can reach us at. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390. You can also reach us in the long, out in long distance land at 844-562-4766. Let me turn his mic on. I have a guest in the studio this evening, a longtime friend and well-known conservative pundit. Uh, pundit. Pundit. Uh, he's also working on the Brad Tross campaign, Joseph Benemy. Good evening, Joseph. Nice to see you again. Nice to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, listen, it was. Uh, I figured by now it was worth bringing in uh, somebody who's well-known as respected in conservative circles as you are to give us a bit of a lay of the land. We can talk all kinds of things. Uh, we can talk about uh, Brad Tross campaign. We can talk about the leadership race in general. There's all kinds of news out of the South that's going on with uh, travel bans and Trump and... Oh, then, we, of course, we have sanctuary cities we could talk about. There's The list is long and varied. And so, just as kooky as ever. Uh, you know what? It's a different color chicken, but it's always a chicken. It never seems to fail. These, these birds just keep dropping on us. As my father used to say, it may be a circus, but it's my circus and it's my monkeys. <laughs> So. Well, your monkeys, not mine. <laughs> well, that's right. I, I officially disown the monkeys and... Well, you know, you know what's funny is, uh, actually, I, I like this, uh, to attribute everything to my dad, whether he said it or not. But uh, somebody told me that phrase a while ago, and I thought, man, I like that. That's really kind of clever. First, well, I have heard it very often. Well, there's a good one, too, that I, I, I've heard and used from time to time. And the, the name of the person who, who uttered it the first time escapes me, but I think it was a journalist um, in Indonesia or the Philippines. I, I just don't recall and and he he liked to say that if it looks like a horse and it if it uh, sorry if it looks like a, in politics if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck it's a horse. Yeah, that's very. <laughs> yeah, and if it looks like a camel. You know, it was supposed to be a horse designed by committee. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, first of all, let's start with um, let's talk about Brad. How he's doing? What's the What's the race look like? Uh, you know, how's it shaping up? I know he just did a, another debate. So let's start with that. How do you do? Okay, well, first of all, let's just make it clear it's Brad Trost, oh, not Trost. Yes. Yeah, so I not a problem. It's, a, it's Well, a lot of people make that mistake, and uh, so I like to just correct them. And, and just for your listeners, it's, um, it is bradforleader.ca. So, you know, I have to give, uh, <laughs> I have to give the candidate the, uh, a plug. And look, we're really excited. Um, uh, the, the campaign is, is still quite crowded. Um, the field is quite crowded, uh, 14 candidates, but... Uh, but essentially, it seems now that uh, that uh, there's some separation that uh, is being created between uh, a front runner pack, if you will, and 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 people who are sort of lagging behind. Uh, and of course, uh, Brad is one of the four or five people in that front runner pack, uh, and they're all more or less close together. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, we're all very excited. Uh, Brad uh, Brad's doing uh, doing well, reasonably well, and. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, to getting into the the final stretch of the of the race. We still have another um, uh, six weeks of uh, or seven weeks of um, er, well membership signups, uh, registering people to vote. Okay, uh, and uh, then after that, then of course there'll be still an, another month or so of campaigning amongst uh, those registered voters in the uh, Conservative Party here in Canada. So of the uh, of the crowd, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but of the also-rans, who are you expecting to drop out in the next, let's say, month or so? 
Well, honestly, I'm not really expecting anyone to drop out. The format of the of the the way that the race has been structured is is um, doesn't leave much uh, incentive for people to drop out, or or perhaps more accurately phrased, it doesn't really create a disincentive to people continuing to run, even if they're not getting any traction in their campaigns. So. Uh, I don't. I don't really necessarily expect anyone to drop out. It's. It's just one of the oddities of of this particular uh, race and and the way that the the party has structured it. So you think if anybody is uh, once you get to the convention, it's when you'll start seeing the uh, the wheeling and the dealing about about um, who's going to support who, who has legitimate sh- uh, a real legitimate shot at it versus people who are in it for the learning experience kind of thing. Well, the the again, it's a, it's it's a a little odd, not odd, but it's it's different than the conventional sort of uh, the way that leaders have been elected in in the past it, for most political parties. It's uh, it the voting won't be held at a traditional convention. So all of the people who have registered to vote in the Conservative Party, and people can register to vote uh, through Brad's campaign at uh, bradforleader.ca. And, Not trying uh, to tell you who to vote for. <laughs> well, I would never, it would never occur to me to tell people who to vote for, but I'm, 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 I like to think that you know, people can make their choices based on all of the information that's available. Okay. Um, but I'm going to, of course, I'm going to plug uh, for, for, for the candidate that I'm supporting and working with. Um, so what will happen is uh, after the membership cutoff, which is at the end of March, uh, the registration cutoff, then a national voters list will be published by the party, made available to all of the candidates. Uh, and uh, and um, all of the candidates will engage in a period of campaigning amongst those registered voters. Uh, and then what will happen is... Uh, the uh, party will uh, mail ballots to all of the registered voters. Um, there may be a uh, vote in person component in some ridings. Uh, I'm not entirely clear on that. Uh, th- those rules will be clarified, at least in my mind, soon. But I do know that the majority of, of people will be voting through a mail in ballot. And it's a uh, single transferable ballot, meaning that individuals will be able to rank the, uh, it's a preferential ballot, which means that you'll only get to vote once, but you'll be able to rank your choices. So you'll have first choice, second choice, third choice, fourth choice, uh, and uh, uh, up to potentially 14. On the 27th of May, which is when the convention is, it's not really a convention as much as it's an event, at which time the the ballot boxes will be opened and the the votes will be counted. Uh, and there's a formula for determining who the wi- the winner is. All of the first choices will be counted, and then the bottom uh, of the, the the pack will be dropped off. And the person for that that person's second choices then will be counted in the recount, um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it it sounds actually far more complicated than it actually is. Uh, the real challenge, of course, is going to be you know if 14 people actually stay on the ballot, don't drop out before the ballots are issued, then uh, then it's going to be a, a long day. and uh, <laughs> Counting ballots, yes. Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't intend to be a scrutineer locked in the, <laughs> in the room not, while they're counting not, ballots repeatedly. Not something so. you, re- you think you'd enjoy is to sit there and watch the ballots get counted again well, and again well, and again? Well, it's a funny thing because some people really enjoy doing that kind of thing, and, and uh, you know, I'm not denigrating it. It's, uh, it takes uh, dedicated volunteers, of which we have many, many in our party, 
uh, and uh, I, I just uh, regret to say that I'm not one of them. Well, let me ask you about the party itself. Uh, I mean, we know we have this race going on. How healthy is the party economically? What's the morale like within the rank and file of the Conservative Party of Canada at this moment? I know that there's, you know, we'll get into the Bombardier thing in a minute because that's that's a, well, okay, it is what it is. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But overall, what's the mood, what's the Conservative mood across the country right now? What's your sense of it? Well, I've been involved, as you know, uh, Nick, in politics and federal politics and conservative politics for, for quite some time. Um, and uh, so I, I've been on the winning team and I've been on the losing team. Uh, and uh, I would have to say that my, my assessment is that the rank-and-file members of the Conservative Party are except in, a, in an exceptionally good mood considering the loss in 2015. Uh, and, and that surprised me a little bit. Uh, I would have thought, as, as is not unusual, that the membership would be uh, morose, very down. Mm -hmm. There'd be a lot of, uh, of um, infighting, if you will, a lot of struggle, uh, a lot of perhaps finger pointing, uh, and uh, very little of that, if any, really developed in the aftermath of the, of the 2015 election. And that was a bit of a surprise to me, and a pleasant surprise. So I would have to say that all things considered, the party membership is upbeat. Um, uh, they're uh, they're uh, looking forward to electing a new leader uh, and uh, and getting on with the job of holding the uh, Trudeau Liberals accountable and 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 fighting a general election in in 2019. And uh, um, you know, and there's a, there are a lot of issues to 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 fight over. Now, do you think that's because when you look at the field of candidates? who are vying for leadership of the uh, <coughs> Conservative Party of Canada, replace Stephen Harper, that, let's face it, it's, it's going to be a tough choice because there are a lot of really good contenders. I mean, there's, with each one, you know, everybody has their favorites and all that, but almost without fail, every single one of them would be a better prime minister than the one we have now, at least you know, from a conservative perspective. So do you think that might be lending some, some strength to the mood of the, of the party, the, giving them reason to feel a little upbeat because they have such a strong field to draw from? I think so. I think that's an important factor. I think also there's a, a certain element of, of excitement uh, in that a number of the candidates really represent a, 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 a strong element of, of the conservative movement in Canada. Um, uh, we have uh, candidates who are more libertarian than other candidates. We have ca some candidates who are um, uh, uh, have a, a great deal of celebrity status, as you know. Mm -hmm. Kevin O'Leary is now in, in the race. Uh, yep. uh, I think he brings a certain amount of uh, of excitement and 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 star power, if you will. Um, uh, a a candidate like Brad, Brad Trost uh, is uh, uh, is uh, a pr fairly uh, well rounded candidate. Uh, um, he uh, he is uh, well representative of all of the factions within the party, which is one of the reasons why I'm supporting him. Uh, uh, we have uh, uh, Michael Chong, who um, is uh, uh, feels very passionately about a, a number of issues. One of which is um, uh, climate change and uh, uh, the notion of man-made climate change, which Brad Trost doesn't agree with. He's as a geophysicist, he. He feels that the, the evidence is very um, uh, inconclusive in this area. Uh, but uh, Michael Chong feels very strongly about it, and he's proposing a number of, 
of uh, of of uh, policy ideas in order to 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 Deal combat it, yeah. combat what he believes is a a, a an important uh, issue to uh, to address. So we have a diverse field um, that is fairly representative of, frankly, all wings or all factions, uh, all uh, outlooks within the larger conservative tent. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, that we're having, if not so much in the debates, because I think that one of the problems is the debates have been fairly scripted. They're, they've been very tightly controlled. And plus, with such a large field of candidates, it's really hard for anyone to stand out. But certainly, when you move off of the stage um, uh, and, and, uh, and the candidates are meeting with members, they're signing up new members, they're, they're speaking with, uh, with constituents from coast to coast, uh, and, uh, and I think they're keeping people very excited. And, and, and something else that, that I really notice as well, and that is that rank-and-file members of the party are really, really paying attention. Um, I know that when, uh, when Brad uh, goes out to meetings and he's speaking with people or, or you know, he's uh, talking to them on the phone or he's doing a town hall meeting or whatever, that they're really asking good, solid questions. And so I, I think that it bodes well for the future of the party. Um, uh, the immediate future of the party. All right. With that, we're going to take a quick break here at the Nick and Knight Show. We'll uh, <coughs> come back right after this with more more with my guest, Joseph Benemy. Stick around. We'll be right back. hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org.
All right. The numbers again, if you want to ha ask Joseph a question or make a comment about anything being discussed this evening, you can call us at 343-700-4390 or long distance at 844-562-4766. You can send me an email too, by the way, if you like, at nick at latenightcouncil.com. And if you want, you, if you're uh, on my Facebook page, you can certainly send me a uh, a comment on Facebook. I'm trying to keep all the methods of communication wide open. We are transparent here. We are want to know what you think. <laughs> but but not Twitter. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't Twitter about Twitter. Uh, you no. know something? I had a conversation about that. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, uh, with an old friend of mine. I don't know. Uh, I just He's an old parliamentarian. When I say old, I don't mean he's physically, like he's not 140. He's probably in his mid-70s. His name is Barry Turner. Very nice guy. Really a super guy. Barry and I like each other a lot. He's, he was in the Mulroney government as a politician. As a matter of fact, I think it was him that decided, made, was the one to decide where the U.S. Embassy would go when they built a new one just off uh, Wellington. And um, I was talking to him today, and he says, you know, people are just getting buried in this electronic stuff with Twitter and Facebook. And he said, I don't do any of that stuff. I either meet them in person or talk on the phone. I don't like all this technology. And I said, you know something? I fought the cell phone for years, didn't want one. Uh, I was happy with smoke signals. But it's kind of like resisting the telephone while you're using the telegraph. Sooner or later, you just got to go with it. He said, yes, but at this point in my life, I'm in no hurry. <laughs> so fair enough. All right. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk with you, Joseph, about is this whole idea of this bailout. The, when I was listening to the radio earlier today, I heard Maxine Bernier on the air. That's kind of why I, I want to get uh, both yours and Brad's perspective, although I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between them, um, about this bailout. They have received billions, billions. It all started under, not, uh, it all started under Lester Pearson in 1966 when they got their first bailout. And now the phrase being tossed around is too big to fail. Where have we heard all this before? And at some point, you gotta, you got to make the painful decision and say, we can't afford to do this anymore. So what is Brad's perspective on this? Because Maxine's going, no, 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 no way, we can't do that no more. And I find it hard to argue with him, and I don't think that most conservatives would. What does Brad say about it? Yeah, uh, Brad Trost is opposed to corporate welfare, and of course, um, uh, giving money to Barmberger is, uh, is a, the consummate example of corporate welfare in Canada. Uh, look, the uh, Bombardier produces uh, airplanes and, and a number of other types of transportation uh, items. I believe they do um, uh, rail cars, rail cars that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. and uh, and and you know their their product is pretty good. Uh, so I I think I think that a lot of Canadians, especially you know middle class Canadians who are struggling to make ends meet in a high tax, uh, um, high cost of living environment. 
uh, you know, that, that's largely caused by high taxes and overregulation, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's hard for them to, uh, to, to swallow. I think it's hard to make the case to them that, uh, that their hard-earned tax dollars should be going to supporting uh, an industry that uh, is, uh, no question it's important, uh, but but its 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 benefit to workers is is fairly narrow. It it um, uh, so you know that's that's I guess that's the argument against Bombardier. But as a general principle, um, uh, you know Brad is opposed to to corporate welfare. Uh, that's one of the reasons why he feels so passionately about privatizing the CBC. Um, some um, you know, talk about the ultimate corporate welfare. Well, exactly in in Canada. Absolutely, uh, the uh, the CBC uh, receives uh, over a billion dollars a year uh, in in subsidies, uh, and that doesn't include the extra money that that taxpayers um, push towards the CBC and other um, quote unquote art uh, in, within the art industry uh, to uh, help to create um, more television shows. Uh, uh, more radio programs, etc. So artistic development, for want of a better term, is not included in that uh, over a billion dollars a year. And then let's, of course, not forget the uh, the money that uh, that all levels of government pay the CBC in advertising fees, because all governments advertise uh, and they purchase ad time uh, with uh, CBC, CBC Television, anyway. Uh, so uh, they get uh, the CBC gets. Uh, a, a whole whack of money from taxpayers. Now, and this, I, of course, is the, as you say, it's the ultimate corporate welfare. Now, let me just clarify something. Um, some of the candidates in this race want to dismantle the CBC. Um, I think Kelly Leach has talked about doing that, uh, just cutting it off altogether, shutting it down, dismantling, I think is the term she used. Um, I believe that uh, Maxime Bernier has talked about um, reforming it, converting it into some kind of a Canadian NPR. form of uh, of uh, uh, national public radio. Yep. Um, uh, uh, of course, the, the the problem with that is that it still would be owned by taxpayers, uh, and uh, and why do we even want to be involved in it? So Brad Trost, his approach is: look, it's it's a going concern. Uh, it has its viewers. Uh, it has a certain reputation for excellence. Not everybody will agree with that, but a good chunk of people out there do believe the CBC is a, a world-class organization, and I'm certainly not going to argue with that assessment. Um, and so Brad feels that you know taxpayers should be able to get uh, the, uh, uh, some value for the money that they've invested in this in this corporation over the years. So he would like to see it privatized. In other words, sell the assets, let Canadians buy shares, uh, take ownership of it uh, and let it sink or swim. And I, su- I suspect strongly that it'll, it'll, it'll swim. It'll change somewhat, but it'll swim. So that's Brad's position on it. Okay, well, let me ask you this, because this again came up in conversation earlier today. Um, th- there's a conversation out there about selling off airports, specifically in this case, the two that were mentioned with the Pearson International in Toronto and our own Ottawa International Airport, <coughs> selling them off like the Ottawa International Airport, as I understand it, is a not-for-profit. Now, people don't understand not-for-profits. They think that means they can't make any money. No, they can make scads of money. It's just the way the, the organization is put together. Um, there are certain rules and regulations that govern a not-for-profit that are different than a for-profit corporation. So the point was that if you sell off all of the, uh, let's call them the crown jewels, okay, the airports, the, the, our, our, our harbors and things like that, turn them into private entities, 
sooner or later, unless you actually get a hand on spending, where do you get the revenue to keep to prolong this ongoing spending that the government of every stripe does? Sooner or later, you're forced into a corner where you have to say, I have to reduce my spending. So maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, well, look, uh, I, I haven't had a conversation with Brad about uh, privatizing airports. Um, uh, I, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, Brad um, would be interested in looking at the pros and cons of, of, of such a, a, a policy. Uh, but, you know, I think that we shouldn't be afraid of privatizing um, crown assets in principle. So... Is it a good idea to privatize airports or not? That's a debate that has to be held. But to say we're not going to privatize airports or we're not going to privatize the CBC because privatization is bad in principle, I think is 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 wrong. Look, let's not forget. You know, I, I hate to say this because I still think of it as yesterday, but you know, it's 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 not just years ago; it's decades ago already when we we privatized Petro Canada. Petro Canada was a state-owned um, uh, um, uh, gas station. Last uh, I checked, whatever. they're still around. They're still around. Uh, Air Canada. Air Canada also was a crown corporation, mm -hmm. it, and it uh, it was privatized as well. And it's still and, around. And, and the naysayers always say the same thing. Uh, if, if taxpayers aren't uh, subsidizing it, uh, then it'll fall apart, it'll disappear, uh, Canadians won't be well-served. Well... Uh, privatization is something that we've done uh, over the years in many instances, and right. and, and and it works out fine. Uh, just one more thing, and just about the CBC, and, and and I think this is important because Brad has mentioned this many times. The real question with the CBC, quite apart from the finance and, and whether or not it's a financial millstone around the neck of taxpayers in Canada, one really has to ask the question whether or not in this day and age. Any country, any state, sh needs to have own, uh, own and operate a broadcast entity. Well, I think that's a fair question, especially when we have you know the so-called thousand-channel universe, and we have the internet, um, and we satellites. have a number of private broadcasters already. So, what's the point? I think you're right because the old argument for CBC, uh, sticking with that broadcaster for a moment was the idea that it's a way of protecting and promoting Canadian culture and that if they don't do it, nobody else will because there's no money in it. And there's a lot of artists out there who go around trying to make their living in Canada. There's been a few successes. Gordon Lightfoot and a bunch of different people like that have certainly made a very nice living in Canada as Canadian artists, but the bulk of them have to go to the States to market their, their, pro their wares. But on the other side of the coin... Um, <coughs> That was a traditional argument, but I've, al I've always believed, or at least have come to believe, that if art is good enough, or what we call the arts are good enough, people will pay for it. It doesn't matter where it comes from. And I know it's a bit of a comical example, but look at the Red Green Show. How many countries did that go to? Homegrown, Canadian, good, good old-fashioned, honest humor. And it, let's face it, who, doesn't, who hasn't said something about duct tape based on the Red Green Show at some point in their lives, right? So there's examples like that where Canadians can excel on the world stage and they don't need the CBC to do so. Well, you're touching on, I think, a very important point that I think needs to be clarified because there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation around uh, telecommunications, around uh, our, the 
involvement of the federal government or any government for that matter in uh, generating culture, in supporting cultural activities, in supporting the development of, of artistic en uh, um, uh, endeavors and projects like television shows, like stage shows, etc., uh, like other, all forms of art. And that is that if the CBC doesn't exist, that funding dries up. And I think it's important to, rem to know that there are other programs that the federal government participates in, funds, that goes toward that kind of activity. So in other words, if you're an independent um, uh, filmmaker. filmmaker, okay, um, there are programs that are available through the federal government uh, that help you, um, to, that help to pay for the programming that you're developing. So it's a totally separate program altogether. So the point I'm making here is that the CBC, and again, this is why Brad feels so strongly about this, is the argument that we need to have the CBC in order to help um, uh, um, kickstart or, or help uh, develop cultural activities and artistic activities in Canada is, is absolutely false. You can have no CBC, okay, or as, as Brad wants, a privatized CBC. The CBC itself would invest money in programming, presumably in pro programming development, but the, 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 the federal government would still be involved in, in, in that kind of programming. So I don't know whether Brad wants to get involved in that. It's okay. a conversation that we've never really had, but it's separate from the CBC. Okay, well, let me ask you this, and then we'll take a break. Isn't that the role of the National Film Board, is to help independent filmmakers get off the ground, so to speak, if I can use that language? Um, because it seems to me that it's a duplication of services. So even if... And ask yourself this, and maybe I'm completely wrong, because I am... No, I, I, I'm a very occasional listener to CBC. Uh, once in a while, if I want to pull my hair out, I'll listen for a few minutes and then, you know, <laughs> try to stuff my hair back in my head, which never works well. Uh, but I always thought that was the role of the National Film Board. Amongst other entities, when you watch a television show, uh, my wife and I were just watching a television series that's, that was playing on Netflix. Uh, and, uh, and at the end of the show, it's really interesting because we were able to see immediately that the show was developed and produced in Canada because um, the police were wearing in this uh, in this series, it was a, a crime show, uh, and uh, the police were wearing typical police uniforms, Canadian police uniforms, right. and the, 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 their chevrons were right side up as opposed to upside down. And <laughs> so I saw it and I said, "That's that was produced in Canada to my wife. She said, well, how do you know that? And I said, well, because because in Canada, the chevrons yeah, smile, right. they don't pout. That's right. <laughs> she So she said to me, come on. She said, to, and so, and, and then five minutes later, she noticed in the background in one of the scenes, a, a CIBC. Right. So it was really interesting because we immediately, we realized, okay, this was, this was obviously it's a Canadian production. Uh, but it's being shown on Netflix, and it's set in the United States. What's it called? Uh, can I say? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, the, it, it's called Slasher. <laughs> okay. I'm All sorry. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, we've been watching a few, too, and I just was curious. All right, got to stop you there. We'll take a quick break. We'll okay, come but back. we have to come back to this. We'll I, come back I, to this, I, and then I have a question from Facebook that I have to ask you. So sure. It's a completely different change, change of topics and direction. Okay, so if you're listening out there, stay, stick around. You can even give us a call at 343-700-4390 if you like. In the meantime, we'll take a little break and be back with more with my friend Joseph Benemy right after this.
Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. All right. Thanks for sticking around, folks. The numbers again are 343-700-4390. You can call us long distance at 844-562-4766. I checked earlier this evening, and we even had a listener in Germany. So if you're listening in Germany, I don't speak in the Deutsch. <laughs> but I hope you're enjoying the show, and I'm hoping that you speak English. All right. Now, um, let's finish up with this whole NPRCBC uh, kind of thing, and then we want to switch topics a little bit because I have a question on Facebook that I want to ask you as well. Sure. Okay, so the point, I, and I apologize, I, I can get a little bit long-winded. <laughs> as my friends Why do like you think I invited you in? Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway. you and I are the same. We're like lawyers. We, the only way we could say less is by talking longer. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed to admit that we were watching Slasher. This was our late-night television. <laughs> you know, we, we turn on the television in the evening and you could uh, have gracefully about us had not rather I, I say. have to tell you, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you who ultimately the perpetrator was or who the slasher yeah. was. Okay, um, uh, but it, but I will say it's really quite shocking how many people have to die in this small rural town before they finally get around to figuring out who the bad guy is. Um, uh, and, uh, but the point, that, honestly... The, so you run out of, you run out of candidates because there's only one left? Well, that's what I was going to say. I, I was telling my wife, as, as, as you know, so many people died, I said, you know, we're going to run out of potential bad guys here. So they're not process even making it hard. It's the process of elimination. Uh, anyway, it was an interesting show, and uh, we enjoyed ourselves thoroughly. Uh, but the point I wanted to make is that uh, when the credits roll at the end of the show, uh, you could see, you know, Government of Canada logo. Um, the uh, taxpayers in Canada helped to fund the production of this show. And the point I'm making is that the money that went into that, whether you agree with it or not, that money did not come from the CBC. The funding that we're talking about with the CBC is completely different and you could have no CBC, no funding for CBC, nothing to do. Like the CBC could not exist, which is not Brad's position. Brad's position, just to be clear, is not to dismantle the CBC. It's not to try to reform it or convert it. It's to privatize it. Let it continue to exist. 
let people be able to buy uh, stock in it. Yep. Um, let it have shareholders. Let it grow organically, um, but not on taxpayers' back. But if there was no CBC whatsoever, that show still would have gotten funding from taxpayers in Canada because it comes under a separate uh, uh, funding uh, uh, envelope. Actually, there's been a, a series that I, I was watching some of called Hell on Wheels. It's set just after the American Civil War, and there's a guy who is seeking revenge for something that a squad of soldiers did to his wife. He was, anyway, it's, it's all shot in Manitoba, or sorry, Saskatchewan and Alberta. And when I'm watching it, the scenery and everything, and just the feel was Canadian, even though it's an American cast and American production. They, and that's another aspect of this whole thing. With the Canadian dollar, it's a, it, it, where it is now, it is really attractive for American filmmakers to come up here and use it in a, a very generic way. Sure. All right. Can, before you go, just one last point on the CBC. All right. Um, uh, 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 Brad did introduce a private member's bill to privatize the CBC, and that will be coming up for, um, for a first reading and debate um, uh, very soon, within the next two weeks. So people should stay tuned, bradforleader.ca. Um, uh, follow him. It's uh, at Brad Trost CP CPC on Twitter. Um, and uh, uh, we'll keep you all informed on it. All right. Now, uh, going back, changing gears completely here, uh, Tim's on Facebook and he says, what is Mr. Prost Trost's position on private property rights, which I can tell you in this neck of the woods or at least out in the rural areas of this end of the country, that's a huge issue. Sure. Well, I, I don't think that it's going to come as a surprise to anyone. Um, uh, Brad Trost is a, a solid conservative um, right across the board. Uh, the, the motto of his campaign is that he's 100% conservative. He's not a fiscal conservative and a social liberal. He's not a social conservative and a fiscal liberal. He's the real deal. And he's a very strong supporter of property rights. Now, the question I think probably that, that Tim is, is interested in is how, how does that translate into action? Protection of property rights. And protection of property rights. And that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and it's a question that, that's still being discussed internally because um, on the campaign because what, what Brad adamantly does not want to do uh, is he doesn't want to propose policy prescriptions that uh, won't stand up to court challenges uh, or that are, are really just fluff uh, aimed at, at uh, attracting support from particular constituencies. He wants to make sure that whatever policies that he's proposing are viable um, and that they'll be effective if they're implemented. So there are a number that are being kicked around right now, some of which I, I know you and I have talked about uh, you know, over um, uh, a coffee a in the evening. I was going to say either that or a plate of eggs in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the possibility of uh, some discussion going around uh, about uh, uh, some kind of a constitutional amendment. Uh, I don't think that uh, that Brad is entirely convinced that a constitutional amendment is, uh, is um, the best way to go. Uh, I, I, th I don't think that Brad thinks that it's necessary um, uh, and of course, there's uh, always the the big question about you know how do you get a constitutional amendment passed? And let's not forget uh, uh, that we do have mechanisms to protect private property uh, in this country. Uh, and uh, and part of the problem is and 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 I, this is really important to 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 really understand. The problem really isn't systemic in that. It's not really that property rights are not entrenched in the Constitution. 
it's that the laws that we already have on the books are not being properly followed. Uh, and when governments encroach on those laws, uh, then it's, it's politicians don't step up and defend private property rights. Uh, so again, I, I'm not saying that that's, the, that that's Brad's position. I'm just trying to, to um, articulate um, and, uh, you know, the complexity of what you do in law in such a way that's going to be effective. Because one thing, Brad, Brad has been a member of parliament since 2004. Um, uh, and, and before that, he, he's a, a geophysicist with a, a second degree in economics. Um, uh, he, he believes in doing things that are effective and that are going to be helpful in the long run. Uh, and so much, so, so often in this business, um, uh, and you'll, you'll understand this because you've seen it yourself where you'll have politicians come and say, you know, they'll make all kinds of promises about what they're going to do. They look for the hot button issues that, uh, that they think, uh, are, um, bothering large enough constituencies and they say, okay, elect me and I'm going to do ABC. Yeah, I'll fix and this. I'll fix this. And quite often the solution that they're proposing, um, they've come up with it or they've proposed it because they've done some polling and it seems like a popular idea. Um, and, uh, and, and that's not a reason uh, a priori to eliminate the idea, but that's just not the way that Brad approaches these issues. He thinks carefully about them uh, and, and he doesn't look for the most popular idea to fix things. He's looking for the most effective way of fixing things. Okay, so that's, so, okay, so I hear you on that. Um, let, let's, and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, pick your brain a little bit about, uh, because we all know that Justin Trudeau is speaking out of two sides of his mouth about uh, the new administration in the United States. On one hand, he, you know, it's no, there's no doubt that he despises everything that Mr. Trump stands for. On the other hand, he wants to, cu he wants to cushy up, he almost has to because of, you know, they're our largest trading partner. And it's true that knife cuts both ways. Nine million jobs in the U.S. depend on imports or exports to Canada. However, he's trying to, you know, juggle a whole bunch of balls here. So when you look at that, and then you look at the leadership uh, of not only Mr. Tross, but of all the candidates, how does, well, let's, let's stick with Brad. How does he see the new administration down there? Have you had a chance to talk to him about that? Like, what, where, if he were prime minister... Uh, how is his approach be uh, different than the one we have now? Other, than, you know, may maybe it's a bit of a silly question, but I just thought I'd throw it out there to see what, you know, because it, from where I stand, it doesn't take much imagination to figure this out. But go ahead. Sure. Well, we we have talked about this quite a bit, uh, and uh, you know, all I could say is is to go back to the uh, first debate uh, uh, amongst leadership candidates in Saskatoon where uh, a, a question similar to this came up and and Brad's answer was that look um, you know you have to you have to respect the decision of the voters in the United States and the way you deal with Americans whether it's uh, a, a democratic administration or a Republican administration uh, uh, is you have to treat them with respect and courtesy just like you would expect them to treat you with respect and cur courtesy and one of the really interesting things about Brad that I think that gives him a leg up on other candidates is all of the work that he's done on on uh, on various committees uh, in uh, in building relationships with a number of, of U.S. congressmen, uh, Congress people, senators as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, he was the uh, vice chair for a number of years of the uh, Canada U.S. parliamentary uh, uh, group, 
which is a, a, an exchange group of, of, of politicians, federal and well, federal politicians here in, in, in Canada and in the United States, uh, where they they do a lot of discussion around these things. They 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 uh, work together on finding solutions. They brainstorm. They interact. So he has a number of very strong personal um, friendships with a number of senators, a number of congresspeople, uh, and uh, and and his approach is, you know, treat them. Uh, this is it simply treat them with respect. Treat them with respect. Expect the same respect in return. And and frankly, frankly, if you do that, you'll get it. Uh, you know, this nonsense about uh, people banging their fists on the desk or on the podium, w regardless of what political party it originates from, you know, uh, the posturing saying, you know, elect me or, 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 or uh, I'm going to, I'm going to treat, uh, um, uh, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to show Donald Trump, you know, who's boss. Well, uh, look, it's it, it, it demonstrably that's not going to happen uh, already. You're dealing with somebody that's, that's that's not going to be um, pushed around, and I think that's pretty clear. But even if the person you felt really could be pushed around, is that the right way to approach um, uh, relations with our closest trading partner and our and our closest ally? Well, it's funny that you mention that. I'm reading a book right now called Cold Fire, and it's about the relationship between Diefenbaker, Pearson, and Kennedy, right during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right up to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and as try as they might, if one pushed on one, the other one pushed back. It never worked out well. The Americans couldn't bully Diefenbaker. Like, I'm gaining a whole new respect for, for Dief the chief because he would not allow our sovereignty to be undermined by the Americans for any reason. And this is leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis, so the Cold War. And my point is that history teaches us, if you care to read it, that that kind of a tactic usually brings nothing but sour grapes. It just doesn't work. And if uh, the boy king decides to go down there and show Trump who's boss, Mr. Trump's going to look at him and say, you fired. You know, get out of my office. Sure. But the important thing uh, that, that Brad has said, uh, both in debates and in meetings and town halls across the country, when he's asked questions about this topic, is that, uh, you know, we, we, we don't go down with our tail between our legs and we don't. Uh, we don't uh, assume that we're negotiating from a position of weakness. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But you just have to treat foreign leaders and foreign dignitaries and, and, and elected um, representatives of the government in foreign countries with respect. That's it in a nutshell, respect. Treat, and treat others as you want to be treated. Exactly. And, and you know, you're going to, whenever you enter into a negotiation, and, and we're going to enter into a period of, 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 of tough negotiations with the United States, you have to expect that they're going to look after their interests. They're going to fight for what's good for them, not what's good for Canada. Uh, and Canadians are going to, re representatives are going to fight for what's good for Canada. Uh, and that's just the nature of negotiations. All right. With that, I have to stop you there. We're going to take a quick break. My guest is Joseph Benemy. Uh The numbers are 343 844-562-4766 for those out in long distance land. You listen to this and we'll be right back.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right, my guest is Joseph Benemy. He is a well-known conservative pundit, and he is also uh, hard at work on the Brad Trost campaign. We've been talking all things Canadian politics. We're getting a little into American politics for obvious reasons. There's been a lot of, uh, I won't call it chaos. But well, yeah, actually it has been chaos. There's been riots at U Berkeley. There's been uh, just, let's face it, uh, they there's a, a like a war between the White House and mainstream media and the left wing in the American on the uh, south of the border and uh, so far uh, our good friend Mr. Trump seems to be for the most part fulfilling the promises he made during the campaign so let, maybe let's start with that uh, and let's start with one of the most the, the flashpoint one other than the travel ban the next big one is the wall you think it's realistic that he's actually going to build the wall? I think it is, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Yes, uh, I I think it's realistic, um, and uh, you know, if you set aside the ideology, uh, first of all, as an engineering project, it's it's uh, it's large, but it's not ex especially complicated. It's a wall, yeah, um, uh, a sophisticated fence. So that's the first thing. The second thing is. Um, they work. Uh, and, and I'm speaking not about the American experience, but I'll speak about the Israeli experience. In the uh, uh, early part of this, uh, of, of this century, yeah. um, when there was a great deal of terrorism originating from uh, towns and villages uh, that were uh, under control of the Palestinian Authority, uh, that, but there was no barrier, if you will, between those communities and, and Jewish communities on the other side of the quote-unquote green line, the, 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 the border right. uh, separating the West Bank and Israel proper. And, um, and, and so eventually uh, the Israeli government built a wall. a wall, not a wall the whole way, but where, where the problems were existing, um, people could still get 
back and forth, but it's a much more controlled environment. Uh, and uh, but and that's the reason. That, that's exactly the result. It's a controlled now uh, access points uh, and uh, far more controlled than they ever were. Uh, it's it's inconvenient for everybody. It's inconvenient for the Palestinians, um, but uh, that's not especially the responsibility of the Israeli government. Um, they felt that they had a responsibility to protect their citizens. Um, and in that respect, it was good for the Palestinians as well because it created a separation, a forced separation, where the conflict wasn't going on directly. There, was, there were a much reduced points of contact and therefore much reduction in the tension. So that's a long-winded way of saying these walls actually do work. Uh, and, uh, and anybody who shrugs their shoulders and says, ah, they don't work, they, they have no idea what they're speaking of. Now, I find it funny that uh, a lot of the, and most of this com uh, comes from the left side of the aisle, uh, this whole outrage about the wall, because, you know, they want open borders, they want people to just pour into the country uncontrolled, and, you know, the Americas, the Americans were, the Americas were built on immigration, so why would this be bad? Never mind the fact that uh, there was a lot of common, common core beliefs back in, in let's say, the, the immigration wave of the 1800s that we don't have now. Um, but a country that can't control its borders isn't really a country. And I find it hypocritical because somehow they never mentioned the wall between Guatemala and Mexico. And how come if it's okay for Mexico to put a wall between itself and another sovereign state, why can't the United States do the same thing? Sure. Well, I, you know, I, I don't... Let me take issue with one thing that I think you're, that you're saying, um, Nick, and that, that is the, the idea of, of open borders. I, I'm not entirely convinced that, that people on the left, I'm not saying that there aren't people who want just open borders and to people just to come in, okay? I'm sure there are people like that. But my experience is that most of the people that I speak with who, um, who and, and I don't have an opinion one way or other about the, about the wall between the United States and Mexico. Let me be clear about that. That's that's the that's business, business of the United yeah. States and the, and the Mexicans. Yeah. I'm just talking, you know, from a strictly neutral position. Uh, if they ever build it, it'll work. Okay, uh, whether they should build it or whether it's right or wrong, that's for Mexico and the United States to decide. Um, having said that, my experience of the people that I've spoken with who are opposed to the wall and are, are more or less on the left of this issue is that they are by and large motivated. I, my sense is that they're motivated by a sense of justice and a sense of compassion. I think they're dead wrong in uh, what they want to do or how they see that manifest. Um, but I think their motives are more or less pure. I think that they're good motives. I just don't think that they've thought very well uh, about the positions they're taking vis-a-vis -vis those motives. Um, look, I, I hear people talk about all the time how, you know, well, Canada and the United States was... We're, we're built on on immigration and 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 in those days you know in the the 1600s and 1700s and the 1800s there wasn't a whole lot of control over immigration there are a lot of people that that found their way to to canada or, or to the united states that didn't go through a process and they settled and uh, but though that was then and i'll tell you the biggest difference between then and now is that when you come to Canada today or when you come into the United States today, when you come into a modern uh, country today, you have access to a whole range of 
programs, benefits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that were not, they just didn't exist back then. So when you came, whether you came as a, an official refugee or an official immigrant in the mid 1800s, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking a little ignorantly here because I really don't know what the process was then, but whether you were official or you were unofficial under the radar, it didn't make any difference because you settled where you settled and you looked after your own affairs, you paid your own bills, you found your own work, the government didn't interfere in your work, they didn't collect taxes off of you, you made your own way, and, and that was it. And but, so, but today, okay, just to finish the thought, today it's completely different. Today, when you come into a country like Canada or the United States, you have certain expectations. There are benefits that are available to you. There are programs that are available to you. So people who have not worked in government don't really appreciate how much planning has to go into delivering those services. And this is an argument that I don't ever hear articulated from my friends on the right side of the, of the spectrum. You have, to, you have to have control. It's not even a question of sovereignty. It's a question of how do I make sure that the resources that are at my disposal, and let's be very clear what that means. That means money that you and I and other families across the country are paying in taxes. How do I make sure that those resources and the programs that those resources are paying for are adequate to, supply, to provide services to people who are coming in? If, I, if we let a million people into this country, we would not be able to provide those people with adequate programming commensurate to, with, to their expectations as new Canadians. So right. we have to control it. And the same thing in the United States. Let me hold you there. And when you come back, I'm going to add, I'm going to add another facet to this that I think is critical. And I haven't heard too many people talk about. So let me, uh, we'll take a quick break. We come back with my guest, Joseph Benemy, uh, right after this. often hear about the supposed dangers of human-induced climate change. But what about the disastrous consequences of climate policy? For example, the closing of Ontario's coal stations was the single most important cause of the 318% rise in power rates since 2002. Thousands of industrial wind turbines are being erected across the province, killing birds and bats and ruining the lives of people living nearby. The expanded use of biofuels has led to 6.5% of the world's grain going to fuel instead of food. Only 6% of the $1 billion spent every day on climate finance goes to helping people today. 
The rest is dedicated to trying to stop climate change that may someday happen. Yet the reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change show that the science backing the climate scare is highly uncertain. Isn't it time we focused on problems we know to be real? This message is brought to you by ClimateScienceInternational.org. turn both mics on there we go okay thanks for staying with us over the break folks the numbers again at 343-700-4390-844-562-4766 if you've got a question and you want to ask it over facebook i am keeping track we've already taken one question off facebook tonight so if you want to do it that way just post a comment i'll see the notification come up i'll go to it and when we get a chance we'll get to the question um one of the things my guest well my guest this evening is joseph benemy and we're talking all things politics. Uh, we were talking about immigration. Uh, we're going to get to the travel ban here in a minute, but uh, that uh, Mr. Trump is trying to impose an, a temporary 90-day travel ban on countries that um, the previous administration thought were a threat. And why this is a big deal, I don't know, but that's besides the point. When it comes to going back to your conversation before the break, Joseph, about immigration and the fact that we aren't, you know, to try to, render the services that are expected of immigrants to this country. Uh, yes, that's all true. I don't argue with a word of that. However, I think there's a fundamental difference between immigration, let's say, leading up to uh, the, last, the, the first half of the last century, up to even after the end of the Second World War, because there was another wave of immigration after that. Because let's face it, Europe and, and many parts of the world were tore apart, and people said, screw this, I, gotta go, I want to go someplace where I stand a better chance of making a good life for myself and my kids. I think what's, what's different is in, in those instances of immigrations, and they seem to come in waves, um, there was a common belief system, a common set of core values that we shared with our Western European, and even in the case of the, uh, the 1970s with the Vietnamese boat people. Um, these groups all shared basically the Judeo-Christian ethic, and it was the principle upon which our society was built. Now, the immigration that we have coming in today, that's not necessarily the case. We have people coming in who don't even believe in democracy, never mind the Judeo-Christian ethic. They don't believe, that, you know, that it's just you have a whole group of people coming in who don't want to amalgamate or don't want to blend in with Canadian society. They want to change it. They want to take it and turn it into what they left. Now, I'm not going to go down the, the angry road here. I'm just stating what I think is a fact, that we have to... If we want Canada to be the country that we all love and, re and remember, we have to look long and hard at who we're letting in and what they want to do when they're here because Canada is a worthwhile country to come to. And it is so because we've had generations of people immigrate to this country, blend in, do their best, roll up their sleeves, and sell out completely to loyalty to this country and build it up so that it can be a beacon to other countries around the world to come and live here. 
And if we don't have that same mindset continuing to come through the front door, if we have other people with other ideas coming in about what they think is a perfect world, you know, then we have a problem. And I think that's what's at the root of the differences between immigration today and immigration up to, let's say, the 1970s with the Vietnamese boat people, because they get cited a lot as well. We, you know, we took in these refugees and it worked out just fine. Yes, because they shared the same basic core values as we do. But when, let's face it, when you bring in uh, people from Somalia, from Yemen, from you know, different corners of the world who don't understand democracy, don't want it, don't believe in it, they have their own code and laws that they want to bring in, and they want to impose that on the rest of us, we have a problem. So that's my different facet on it compared to what a lot of other people might say. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you're wrong. I think that's an important factor. Um, and and I, think that, I think that people are inherently uncomfortable with that argument, um, as, as valid as it is. And I certainly think it's valid. It's it's a valid, uh, an important and valid consideration. But people are are inherently uncomfortable with it because it means having to talk about people's deep seated, uh, deep rooted convictions, particularly religious convictions, uh, and and as and 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 people in in our part of the world are not comfortable with the notion of uh, discriminating in one form or another based on a person's religious beliefs. Now, I'm, I'm not making a comment one way or the other, good or bad, or right or wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that I, I think that you're, you're touching on an important point. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I'm, I also think that, you know, one of the reasons why, particularly on the left, uh, people don't like to talk about this is because of that, that it, it does t t touch on on religious beliefs, and we believe in religious tolerance and, 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 and freedom of religion. Uh, and this is, this is a, a fairly new thing in the world because it's so easy to travel around now, uh, and, and migration of larger populations is becoming, over a period of time, more normal. Uh, and, and so we in the West are struggling with the implications of that ease of migration, if you will. And, and I, I don't, I, I'm just, this is me speaking, I'm not speaking on behalf of Brad Trost on, on this, okay. I'm just, this is just me saying that it, it's a struggle. It, it's, it's, you know, it, it really is. But, when you see, uh, but I, let me just, let me just say this one thing, okay? okay. And and what I wish what I wish would be that that those who are on the left and I use that term very loosely I wish they would appreciate the struggle I wish they would appreciate the complexity of the question rather than automatically default, defaulting to uh, you know you're a racist or you're bigoted or you know it's Islamophobia, okay, which is the, the term that's bantered around so so loosely and carelessly these days. Uh, look, there are real issues here, uh, and and they deserve to be thought through. Mm -hmm. Here's, see, to me, I hear you and I get it. I understand all that. It's there's there's. I'm not arguing with that particular point of view, but what I am saying is, the time. <laughs> We have to be pragmatic, and we have to be 
we do have to look at you. We talked about how on different trade issues, people are going to negotiate for their own best interests. And immigration is not a right. It's a privilege. And too many people talk of, make it seem like it's a right, that I have the right to immigrate to any country I want to. No, you don't. No more than you have the right to walk through your neighbor's front door, sit down in the kitchen, and demand a meal. Okay? You don't have that right. And too many people get caught up in the emotional idea of, oh, those poor people over there, we need to save them all. We can't save them all because saving them all sinks our own lifeboat. <clears throat> if you've got a lifeboat full with 40, 40 people capacity, you might be able to take 50, but you can't take 100. <laughs> so the point I'm making is that we have to look at where other people have tried this and the results. And you look at Europe, and you look at the mess that's going on over there, and if we continue down this track, that's what's going to happen. Now, that leads me into the conversation about the ban. Donald Trump has tried to impose through executive order a temporary 90-day travel ban on seven uh, countries that Obama thought were a threat. I don't see any problem with that any more than I see somebody bolting the door for the night. And yet, you have this massive hue and cry protest all over the world, never mind just in the United States, over a temporary 90-day ban and all the trouble it's going to cause. I'm sorry. Maybe you can explain the logic of that to me because I don't get it. I can't explain the logic of it because it's, it's not logical. I think that the protests that you see are largely based on prejudice uh, against Donald Trump uh, uh, and ignorance as to what exactly the, his executive order uh, was intended to do. Uh, that's my general observation. Here, here's my specific Brad Trost observation. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, uh, uh, Brad, Brad Trost um, would, would be prepared in similar circumstances to call for a moratorium on regular immigration from countries like this, failed states, uh, where there is no uh, government in place um, in order to ensure that uh, immigrants coming from these countries are uh, properly vetted, um, or countries, for that matter, that, that harbor terrorism, that, that, that promote terrorism, that support terrorism. Uh, so, you know, Brad's position is not very different from Donald Trump's position on this particular issue. Uh, I think that uh, perhaps President Trump inaugurated this particular project somewhat inelegantly, but I don't, in the end, um, think that that would have mattered because there's a whole lot of people out there that just don't like him and they're not interested in getting the facts before they react. They just, they just assume the worst possible motivations in him. But, but, but you're you're right, and and you know, there were a few other things on immigration that I think that ought to be considered. Um, the first is. When we have, oh, by the way, I know I really should go back just for a second. When Brad talks about how he would be prepared to entertain temporary travel bans from these countries or temporary immigration bans, that would be regular immigration. That would not be for genuine refugees who are fleeing these areas um, because they're subject to persecution. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the areas that Brad would be prepared to entertain some kind of a moratorium on regular immigration from uh, could be um, Iraq or Syria, um, uh, or, or in fact, you know, Libya or Yemen. These are countries that that we've that 
we've talked about in, internally because of the utter chaos that's going around in those countries and in those regions. Having said that, okay, while he is wary about regular immigration from these areas, he has worked very closely with communities such as the Yazidis, the Ahmadiyyan Muslims, okay, um, and of course, uh, what you can't forget Christians. Christians are, frankly, the most persecuted um, religious group on the planet today. Uh, and so these are legitimate refugees. And, you know, when people are fleeing for their lives uh, or they're fleeing uh, a, a tyrannical government because they disagree with the, 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 the culture or the system uh, where, you know, a, a woman ha- has, commits adultery, um, you know, as wrong as that may be from a moral perspective, mm-hmm. should that person, should that woman be taken in front of a crowd of thousands of people and, and caned, you know, 40 or 50 times in public? Uh, is that something that we want to bring to this country? And there are plenty of people in plenty of, in those areas that go, that's barbaric. I, I need to get away from a country that practices this. I'm not against, and by the way, against legitimate, uh, you know, people who want to flee that, I, I'm I am absolutely open-armed to those kinds of people because who would want to live that way? I don't have any problem with that. The trouble is when you come from some of these war-torn and absolutely dysfunctional com- countries like Yemen, like uh, Somalia, where there is no functioning government, how are you supposed to know who's who? I mean, if two people show up, one's a terrorist and one's fleeing the terrorist, how do you know which one's which? It's not a case where you have a regular government with documentation and you can check their background and you can go and look at police records and things like that like you would normally vet somebody. It's simply not possible. Yeah. The two other things, the two other observations I'd make, you know, just going back to, to, to the whole theory of immigration in general, and that is that, you know, when we talk about being compassionate to, to refugees, there, there are not a million refugees in the world today. I mean, legitimate refugees. There are not tens of millions of legitimate refugees. There are probably a few hundred million uh, legitimate refugees in the world today. So when we talk about you know uh, being being open to refugees, um, you know let's not kid ourselves. You know we tend in this country and on the left in, in particular to uh, give ourselves a pat on the back because you know we're compassionate and we're doing all the things that we need to do. Uh, we sleep better at night. We you know we. We like ourselves a whole lot better. Yeah. But the reality is, when it comes to refugees, we're not doing a whole lot of anything, um, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, you bring in 25,000 Syrian refugees. And, and, I, and I have to tell you, if people out there knew some of the problems that were being imported into this country with, with, with that community, and, um, and, and I don't want to get into, into that too deeply, but... but there are legitimate, serious concerns about about some of the things that uh, that are coming into this country, along with that particular community, that have been going on under the radar with respect with respect to to people's attitudes towards other people. There's a lot of, frankly, there's a lot of anti-Semitism um, in that particular group, and especially amongst the children who don't even ever get interviewed or discussed or anything like that. They just come with their parents. So the question is, what are we going to do about that long-term? What are the long-term consequences? I, I don't know. But the point I'm making is that we bring in 25,000 refugees. Let's say we double 
it to 50,000 refugees from Syria, uh, there are two and a half or three million refugees. So how do we say we're doing a great job? We're really not doing a great job. We're, we're taking a, a, a drop from a, a little eyedropper from a five-gallon pail, okay, and, and, and saying that we're doing this wonderful thing. So that's, let's, let's keep things in perspective, okay? We're, 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 we're doing a small good job maybe, uh, but we have no intention of doing a really big good job. Well, wouldn't it make sense, since we're talking about this anyway, um, to look at, like, and again I go back to, other than what's going on now, the biggest refugee crisis the world faced up until the end of World War II. There were millions of people displaced in large stretches of the world. And all you got to do is look at Europe. My family included. Exactly. So w the vast majority of refugees never left their country. They just fled ahead of the fighting and tried to get to safe zones. Some of them did, no doubt. Uh, but for the most part, when the war was over, the world came together through the McCarthy Plan, I believe that's what it was called, and rebuilt Europe and the Pacific and allowed people to get a start in their own countries all over again. Right, Marshall Plan. Marshall, that was it. Now, McCarthy was something different. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it started with an M. Anyway, the point is that why aren't we making efforts like that today? Uh, you got to finish off. You, you, in other words, we have to finish the war so that we can begin the reconstruction. You can't do them both at the same time. That tried, they tried that in Afghanistan. We all know how that turned out. You've got to actually finish the fight. So finish, if it, t if it means taking out the Assad regime or restabilizing it or whatever, somehow you have to bring the fighting to an end. And that usually means a military victory. Then when that's done, and I can hear people out there, how do you beat an insurgency? Well, you know what? <laughs> you, you gotta, you, that's not for me to decide. That's for the generals and that's for the people who make those kind of decisions. But the bottom line is the most compassionate thing to do is to help the refugees Stop being refugees where they are because that's their culture. That's where they're. That's where you know we can help them develop their economies and all that, just like we did in Germany, just like we did in Japan and in Italy and in a dozen other countries after the war. There's no reason why we can't do that again. History can repeat itself and in a good way and take the lessons we learned. So why don't we do that rather than doing this little drop in the bucket, which overwhelms our own uh, supply of uh, our service industry, if you want to call it that, for government services, causes us all kinds of problems, it makes sense to me to help them where they are. Sure. Well, and of course, it's the, the, the notion that all refugees are going to be resettled in, in the West or anywhere is, is just nonsensical on its face. There are just too many, um, and uh, it's, it's simply not possible. And that's dealing with refugees, but let me, let me also make one observation about immigration in general. And you know, and, and this is a completely different perspective. And here again, I want to emphasize, I'm, I'm not speaking on behalf of Brad Trost on this. This is just Joseph Ben and me talking about, you know, over a, um, a, a can of pop here with my friend Nick Vandergrap. Um, I think it's also important to ask ourselves, what is it that we're really accomplishing for those societies or what are we doing to those societies, those countries, those communities from which we bring immigrants from which we take immigration from, okay? You're talking about I don't the know brain if that's what, Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what I'm doing, is uh, what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, we're, we, we, we establish criteria. We want the best and the brightest from those communities to settle here in Canada or in the United States or, or wherever, 
But I think that it's important for us to keep in mind that what we're also doing is we're poaching the best and the brightest from those communities and those countries and those societies that those people, if they stayed, could contribute a great deal to the improvement of everybody else that gets left behind. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch topics to the United Nations. Uh, I've got about a, it runs about six-minute clip here that I'm going to play. I'm going to want to get your take on it when it's over because one of my favorite organizations to hate is the United Nations. And here's some ammunition by a guy called, uh, I think you say that Hillel Neuer. Uh, he's with, U uh, with UN Watch, and he's speaking before a Senate subcommittee. So we'll get to that right after this. Timo's 2000 Mobile Auto Cleaning comes right to your driveway and makes your vehicle look brand new again. Classic cars, bikes, boats, RVs, dump trucks, hot rods, tractors, transport trucks. We can even make your minivan look like the day you drove it off the lot. Did you spill too much coffee on your seat? Did Junior decide he couldn't wait till he got home? And yuck, maybe you're just long overdue for that meticulous cleaning. Maybe you want to sell the old beast. Smartest thing you can do is make it look brand new again. Timo's 2000, 613-327-8498, 613-327-8498, or go to timos2000.com. Thank you. 
Okay, thanks for staying with us. I have a clip that runs about six minutes. I apologize for the length, but it's important. And I think um, you deserve to hear the whole thing. This, again, is Hillel, a gentleman by the name of Hillel Neuer. He's with UN Watch. They're a watchdog organization, keeps an eye on the UN Human Rights Council. And he's, being, uh, he's giving a statement to the U.S. Congress Joint Subcommittee on February 2nd of this year, 2017. So his comments are very current. Uh, so here it is. I'll let it play. And then when it's done, we'll get Joseph's feedback on it. And if you want to jump into the conversation, we'll give you the numbers and all the contact information as well. So here it is. First, we're delighted to welcome Mr. Hillel Neuer. He's the executive director of UN Watch, a Geneva-based NGO that monitors the UN and promotes human rights. Mr. Neuer is an expert on the UN Human Rights Council, has addressed every single one uh, of its 33 regular sessions. We look forward to your testimony, Hillel, and we thank you for traveling so far to be with us this morning. In the interest of full transparency, I will tell you that he presented me with uh, a coffee mug well within the uh, ethics rules, Mr. Deutsch. And uh, I like it that you put the criticism of your organization from UNRWA. Yes, we are known by our enemies. Congrats. And uh, Mr. Neuer, we will begin with you. Thank you so much. And as I said, all of your statements will be made a part of the record. Chairman Ross Lettinen, Chairman Smith, Ranking Member Deutsch, Ranking Member Bass, distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to testify on the important matter of the United Nations, Israel, and the Palestinians. Alarming actions by the UN have drawn renewed attention to the world body's pattern and practice of scapegoating Israel and to the vast infrastructure that the UN has constructed to demonize the Jewish state. Now, normally the one UN body that is protected from the campaign to single out Israel for discriminatory treatment is the Security Council. Normally, the United States uses its veto power in that body to deter or defeat unbalanced, unfair, and unhelpful initiatives. That is why all of us were astonished to see the Obama administration in its last days break with tradition and allow the enactment of Resolution 2334. It sent the message to the Palestinians that they have no need to negotiate, but can wait for the UN to give them everything they demand. It encourages efforts to prosecute Israeli leaders and officers at the International Criminal Court and boycott campaigns. Former Secretary of State Kerry said that the resolution condemned Palestinian terrorism and incitement. In fact, the text nowhere attributes these crimes to Palestinians. Absurdly, Jerusalem's Temple Mount and Western Wall, the holiest sites in Judaism, together with the Jewish quarter of the Old City, are all defined by 2334 as, quote, occupied Palestinian territory. Now, Congress should make clear that accusing the Jewish state of illegally occupying its holiest sites and historic capital is as absurd as saying that the Vatican is illegally occupied by the Catholic Church, that Mecca is illegally occupied by Muslims, or that London, Paris, and Washington are illegally occupied by the British, French, and Americans. If the Security Council is normally the exception, what preceded that decision in 2016 is the rule. In March, the Commission on the Status of Women condemned Israel as the world's only violator of women's rights, ignoring real abusers such as Iran and Saudi Arabia. At the same time, the Human Rights Council celebrated its 10th anniversary, a decade in which it adopted 68 resolutions against Israel and 67 on the rest of the world combined. The Council also appointed Canadian law professor Michael Link as the, quote, special rapporteur on Palestine, 
whose mandate actually is to investigate Israel only. While all UN monitors are obliged to be impartial, and though Mr. Link was expressly asked in his application about his objectivity, he failed to disclose his long record of anti-Israel lobbying or his board membership on three pro-Palestinian organizations, including Friends of Sabil. He now has that post for the next six years. In May, the UN's World Health Organization singled out Israel as the only violator in the world of, quote, mental, physical, and environmental health. In September, UN expert Ravka Simonovich, summing up her visit to the Palestinian territories, concluded that when Palestinian men beat their wives, it's Israel's fault. In October, UNESCO negated its mandate to protect world heritage by adopting a resolution which used Islamic-only terms for Jerusalem's Temple Mount, denying thousands of years of Jewish and Christian heritage, religion, and culture. In December, the General Assembly adopted 20 one-sided resolutions against Israel and only six on the rest of the world combined. There was not one resolution on Saudi Arabia, China, Cuba, Venezuela, Turkey, and many other serial human rights abusers. Now, as the chairman indicated, one of the worst offenders is UNRWA. This morning, UN Watch published a 130-page expose entitled Poisoning Palestinian Children, a report on UNRWA teachers' incitement to jihadist terrorism and anti-Semitism. This report documents 40 cases and is now online at unwatch.org. With your permission, I will submit the report to enter it into the record. One can see Facebook pages of UNRWA teachers celebrating the kidnapping of Israeli teenagers, cheering rockets fired at Israeli civilians, erasing Israel from the map, and posting overtly anti-Semitic videos, caricatures, and statements. Last year, we exposed 30 cases. UNRWA's response, as you read from the mug, was to attack UN Watch and to deny the problem. We know of not one racist teacher who was fired. In October 2015, the UK banned a teacher for life from the classroom for a Facebook post praising Hitler. In our report, there are two staffers who published the identical Hitler photo and comment, and I want to know why are UK children protected from racist teachers while Palestinian children are left exposed to this poison? There is a new UN Secretary General, and there is a new concern about funding. He said he'd be on the front line in the battle against anti-Semitism. We've just sent him the report, and we hope that indeed he will be on the front lines. The US Congress is the one reliable force that can hold the UN to account. I thank you for your continued noble efforts. There is more in my written remarks about which I would be happy to elaborate. Thank you. Okay. Let's see, i got to turn that mic down now, it's a little too hot. There we are, that's a little better. Sorry for the quality of, the, of that, I'm playing it off my laptop, so uh, I was uh, tried to make some adjustments to it. But uh, Joseph, you heard what he had to say, what do you think? Yeah, nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I like about you, I can count on you for a well thought out, long, explanatory uh, remarks. <laughs> well, sometimes I can be a little too long-winded, and then sometimes... There's not much that more to say. Look, um, it, it, it reminds me of a conference I was at a number of years ago where the, one of the presenters um, uh, at uh, over lunch or after lunch uh, uh, gave uh, delivered an expose, if you will, on um, anti-Semitism uh, in uh, in Canada and particularly in Montreal, coming from you know radical Islamic sources, uh, etc. And uh, the name of the organization escapes me right now, but uh, 
um, I wandered up to the microphone afterwards, and 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 this was the first exposure that the people who were attending this conference with me, or most of the people who were attending this conference with me, had to uh, any of this. They didn't, you know, realize that this kind of thing was going on, uh, and and it, it suffice to say that the audience was shocked that any of this kind of thing could be going on in in Canada. Uh, they had no idea, and they were really shaken by it. Um, and, uh, so when I made my way to the microphone and, uh, I, uh, you know, it was my turn to speak, uh, I simply had one observation, uh, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. Because I've been dealing with this for, 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 uh, you know, in one form or another for quite some time as well. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I was, I was the director of, of communications and government relations and diplomatic affairs for, for B'nai B'rith for uh, uh, for a few years as well, and, and this was just par for the course. Um, I'm not a big fan of the United Nations. I think in fairness, there are some departments within the United Nations that do some good work. Well, the janitorial staff, I'm sure, keeps the place Well, clean. there are, like, you know, but in, in fairness, the uh, organizations like the, the World Health Organization, for instance, they, they do some good stuff. There's uh, the the UN is not all bad. Let's say the UN is ninety five percent bad. <laughs> That's I, like saying here, drink, take a glass of water, take a take a drink of this. It's ninety five percent pure. What's the other five percent? Arsenic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Only in this case it would be ninety five percent arsenic and five percent water. Pure. Yeah, I know. Yeah, look, um, it's. Uh, uh, I I think that I think that you know if if you look at the United Nations objectively and. And certainly, you know, Brad, Brad has expressed his opinion on this from time to time. Uh, I think that there's a, there's a, a lot that we have to think carefully about in terms of our relationship with the United Nations. It's it's not easy to simply extricate um, uh, ourselves from an organization of this nature. Um, but but certainly, you know, within conservative circles, there's been a lot of talk of of developing an alternative to the United Nations, where you know, basically, you have to be a democracy. A genuine liberal democracy, small l liberal, right. um, not you know, not liberal in the progressive sense of the word today, but but genuinely classical liberal, free markets, um, uh, rule of law, uh, that kind of thing. There's there's certainly a a, a a a strong feeling that that an organization of this nature is needed. Um, I've had personally some involvement in d discussions around this, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that the pushbacks is that that we do have some organizations that that are more or less representative of democratic countries. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that I agree that that the organizations that have been cited have, are are you know adequate to to what has to be. I think what has to be done in the world. Look, bottom line is this: um, I I I think that uh, you know it, I I think that when it, if and when Brad is becomes the leader of the Conservative Party, and and certainly you know that's that's his intention, and and our intention is to work very hard to make sure that he accomplishes that goal, and then beyond that to become the Prime Minister of Canada under a a, a majority Conservative government. Um, uh, I think that this is one of the things that uh, that uh, that we'd like to look at seriously. Um, you know, Brad doesn't have a policy on the United Nations, um, uh, except to say that as with all things. Um, uh, you know, we need to take a, a step back, look at how we do things, where we do them, and why we do them, uh, and ensure that uh, that we're serving the best interests of Canada and Canadians, um, and that we're 
properly, fully, and honestly uh, representing genuine Canadian values internationally. Is the United Nations in its present form the best way to do that? That's an open question. Um, uh, and, uh, and a discussion that, that uh, I, I can very well see us participating in moving forward. Well, <coughs> if it was me running the show, it would be simple. You just tell the ambassador to go fishing, hang a gone fishing sign on the, on the door, take the checkbook we use to write checks to the UN, rip it up, and just stop playing and work towards establishing... I like your first idea uh, <coughs> about having, let's say, a UN of democratic countries. Real, and I don't mean anybody with the name democratic because some of those are the, some of the worst uh, tyrannical governments, the democratic... Con uh, Government of the Congo and North Korean Democratic Republic and things like that. Yeah, it's sort Just of like it's sort of like you know, if 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 you have to claim you're democratic in your you're title, probably you're probably not. not. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, to set but to set up something like that, uh, the classic smaller liberal democracies, where those countries band together for mutual interests, kind of like a, a fraternal club, and and have them conduct trade and, 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 you know, work out their problems. Go back to the original mandate of the United Nations, which I think when Winston Churchill first promoted this idea back, well, they tried the League of Nations, but at, in, during World War II and towards its end, he was promoting the whole idea of the UN as we know it now. I think he would be rolling over mm -hmm. in his grave if he knew what it had turned into. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, well, the, the, the United Nations... The United Nations that we have today is not the United Nations in its original conception at the end of the Second World War. It was, you know, primarily it was a vision of, of, of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and, of course, you know, he, he, he died before the project came to fruition. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Winston Churchill bought into it largely because of his very strong belief in the value of collective security. And um, I would say that, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure. I haven't read any of his observations on the United Nations up to, you know, the point when, when he, he passed, which was in 1965. But I suspect that he was somewhat disappointed in the direction that it was going. And certainly, I agree with you, certainly as a supporter of the, the notion of collective security and the importance of free countries to band together uh, to support one another in the face of challenges from, you know, unfree countries, if you will, uh, that uh, he would be very disappointed and, and, you know, perhaps even figuratively speaking, rolling over in his grave. I, I hope he's not literally doing that. I, I couldn't agree with you more because... I couldn't resist it. that little joke there. Yeah, I, 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 you're very good at it. You, that was well done. Uh, but I think that the, um, uh, when you look at what the UN is today, uh, I, and I agree with you, there, there are certain things like the WHO that are... are if you took them out and had them as standalone organizations, they'd do just fine. So it's kind of like, okay, the barn's on fire. What do I do? Try to put the barn out, put the fire out, and hopefully everything in it I can salvage? Or do I try to rescue the few pieces in it, like the, uh, the uh, buggy and sulky and things like that and a couple of horses, and let the rest of it burn because I'm never going to put the fire out? Sure. You know, that's, that's the way I look at it. And when I look at the, the different organizations that are out there, uh, NATO needs to be redefined in its in its modern configuration because let's face it, what it was formed for is now no longer real in our world. NORAD has to be reexamined, and that, as a matter of fact, let's let's take a few minutes towards the end of the show here. We've got about uh, oh, a few minutes left. 
I'm just trying to find my clock here. Yeah, we've got about 20 minutes left. So let, let's talk. I, and I, I, if you don't have any comments or you've never thought these things through, I get it because there's so many different things to try to keep track of. But how do you think a Trump administration is going to impact Canada's defense policy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, let's let's take let's take President Trump or candidate Trump. No, he's president now. No, no, I know that, but I'm going back to oh, okay, his, what he talked about as a candidate. All right. Uh, and 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 his observation that um, other NATO countries, in his view, were not pulling their weight, mm -hmm. and they were too dependent on the United States to look after their safety and 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 welfare. I I I I don't think he's was wrong in that observation, um, and uh, I know that uh, that that Brad Trost believes that uh, Canada needs to be doing more to pull its 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 own weight within those organizations that uh, that it plays a role in, specifically uh, NATO and and NORAD as well. And uh, one of the things that Brad is is proposing uh, is that. Uh, uh, under a, a Brad Trost majority conservative government, that the um, our defense spending would increase um, uh, incrementally every year until it reaches um, the uh, the NATO average. Two percent. Um, uh, and uh, I I believe at the at this point in time that we're somewhere twenty uh, third, I think, of twenty eight countries. Or yeah. it's in that range. It's rather embarrassing to tell you. The and truth. and. Uh, well, it's not just embarrassing. The real question is, and um, uh, uh, that you know, and this is the question that Brad um, uh, asks, and that is, you know, do we really are we really giving our our soldiers, sailors, and airmen or air? It's okay. You can say air, here. air people. Yeah. Um, uh, are we are we giving them the resources that they need in order to accomplish the missions that we're assigning them? Uh, and and I think it's pretty clear that 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 we're not. Uh, and so, you know, we have we have our, our forces doing many, many different things around the world. Some of them are public, many of them are not public. That's right. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, Canadian service men and women are put at risk every day um, uh, in in many places around the world, as I say. And we owe it to them to provide them with the resources that they need to be able to perform those missions, and also to to be able to react adequately. Um, to any kind of, of uh, provocations uh, or, or, or emergencies that exist that occur, whether they're domestically here in Canada um, uh, or, uh, or overseas. And, you know, we don't just owe our servicemen and women um, uh, this uh, uh, seriousness, if you will, but, but Brad also uh, believes that we owe our allies as well. And we have citizens. obligations. And, and the citizens, and this is the whole notion of collective security. And so, uh, as I said, um, you know, there are a lot of details that have to be fleshed out, but as a matter of principle, um, uh, you know, Brad is, is very much committed to um, uh, increasing the uh, spending that we, the, that we, that we do on, on our military. And let me make this point as well, okay, because I think it's important, because every time we talk about increasing military spending, we think about going to war. Um, and certainly, you know, that's the primary function of a military. Right. Uh, but, but let's also bear in mind that we live in a very big country. And I remember somebody once asking me, why do we need to have uh, serious airlift capacity in Canada? Um, uh, you know, it's not like we're going to be transporting tanks overseas and, 
and, and heavy equipment like that. And, and you know, maybe at that point in time we, we weren't. Maybe we'll change our, 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 our defense spending and strategy moving forward. I don't know. That's a discussion to be had. But one thing I do know, and that is that this is a very big country. And, and while we have not called on our military much to re react to natural disasters, okay, um, we have in the past sometimes. Well, the most recently, well, most recently we deployed some soldiers in the, the Maritimes um, uh, to, to help with cleanup and, and rescue and stuff uh, w w as a result of a large, um, not the Maritimes, yeah, I guess it would be Flight Maritimes. 111 Swiss Air? So, no, no, um, in the last couple of weeks, I believe. Oh, oh, uh, oh. far more from, recent than that. Yeah, just uh, there was a, a large storm. and. Okay. Uh, so they were helping out and, 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 and what have you. But you're quite right. Going back to the ice storm uh, here in the Ottawa area um, in uh, 1998, I believe it was. Uh, uh, yeah, something right. like that. Yeah. And, and uh, where, where uh, we asked the military to, to come in and, and, and help, and uh, they didn't even have the vehicles available to, for them to be able to help out locally. And we had to borrow military vehicles from our American allies um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's so a it's mandate, a terrible situation. It's a mandate within the military called aid to civil power, and when it, that's when uh, and completely, it's completely um, you know reasonable that taxpayer paid for equipment to be put into use during times of crisis within the country. The Red River flood comes sure. to mind, the Fort Mac fire, you name it. There's all kinds of uh, situations and heavy lift can carry a lot, a lot of other things besides troops. And I'm not saying that, you know, that, that we have to have 10 heavy lift airplanes or anything like that. I'm just using them to illustrate the point. So it's not yeah. a policy thing. And, and uh, uh, you know, Brad, Brad has family members who are in the military, um, uh, and he himself, you know, it, was, had it, it, he had intended to join the military. There was a complicated reasons uh, why that didn't happen. But uh, but he's uh, very much committed to the troops and uh, and very much committed to ensuring that they have the resources available to, as I say, to do the missions. That well, as long as he starts rebuild, yeah. starts with rebuilding the navy, I'm a happy man. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, well, I'm kind of biased in that area, as you <laughs> yeah, as you know as well. We're both uh, we're both uh, <laughs> former. Uh, well, uh, I won't go into the the language well, they but, would use but, to describe but it's, this. But it's it's very important. No, it's important for people to understand that Canada is principally, you know, when they think about the military, they think about the Army and sometimes the Air Force, as well, Air Force as well. But Canada is very much a, a maritime country. We have the largest coastline in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the Navy plays a very important role uh, in not just uh, in, in traditional, if I could use that term, military sense, but in environmental protection and, 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 uh, and in... Uh, criminal and drug and, and illegal drug immigration, interdiction, interdiction yep. et cetera. Yep. So the, the, the role of the Navy in particular is very vast. Uh, and, and there, once again, do we, do we have the resources, uh, do we give the Navy the resources to uh, accomplish the mission that we want them to accomplish effectively? In one sentence, not even close. So again, this is why I'm saying is that, uh, that uh, Brad is very much committed to increasing the, uh, the budget of the military um, until it such a time as it reaches the, the, the NATO al uh, average uh, and that we're able to adequately uh, fulfill our responsibilities to Canadians and, and to our allies uh, you know, internationally. All right, with that said, we'll take a break. We'll come back with the final segment with my guest, Joseph Benemy, right after this.
For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right, final segment will be a short one, so I'm just going to uh, ask my guest, Joseph Benemy, kind of to summarize um, for us, with everything that's gone on, looking ahead, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, nobody can see the future, but an educated guess. A year from now, um, what do you think the relationship's going to be like between Canada and the United States, given present leadership in both countries? Yeah, I think that's a great question, uh, Nick, and... Uh, I'm. Uh, I, I think that you know. I think that that both leaders and are going to to arrive at some kind of a modus vivendi. Um, uh, I think that uh, you know we have to get along on a certain level. I think that there's going to be a certain amount of acrimony there still. It's pretty hard for for me to to envision you know Donald Trump turning a blind eye to you know silliness and stupidity on on the part of 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 the. Uh, a very strongly ideological government that we have in place now. Uh, pretty hard for me to believe that every member of the Liberal government is going to be, you know, reserved and respectful towards uh, towards the American administration. So I see, I, I could sort of foresee some bumps along the road. Um, uh, there were always bumps along the road, but I could foresee many more uh, of, of, of greater significance. But in the end, I think that we'll find a way to, 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 to make things work. Uh, I certainly hope that we do, um, uh, but uh, that's that's my prediction. Okay, one more quick prediction. Will Trump come to Canada in the next year? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, my understanding is that, that he was all set to come to Canada, and, and it was our government, uh, the Trudeau government, that asked him not to bother uh, because uh, they felt that there were some security issues and they couldn't control the demonstrations. And I thought that was a kind of a lame thing because, you know, you don't have to meet in downtown Ottawa. There are lots of places where you don't have to worry about demonstrators, etc. So uh, um, I, I th thought that was a big misstep on the part of our government. Um, will Trump come to Canada? Of course, I, I believe he'll come to Canada. 
um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and so he should. Um, but there it is. So, uh, all right. Okay. So bradforleader.ca. All right. Go to bradforleader.ca, register to vote in the Conservative Party of Canada election coming up this spring. Um, you could do that by going to the website, buying a membership, and please do not forget to make a donation. <laughs> while because, you're there. While you're there, because I hate to say it, but money, regrettably, is the lifeblood of everything that we do in politics. It's the money, the lifeblood of everything we do, period. True enough, my <laughs> friend, true enough. Thank you, Joseph. It's been a pleasure to see you again, and certainly a pleasure to have you in studio. I hope I'll have you back again soon. It's been a lot of fun, Nick. Thanks for the invitation. All right. With that, I'm going to wrap it up. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. To all of you, ubiqueritas et amor, Deo CBS. Good evening, God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace, and may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Spent it in good company And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all I've done for want of wish to So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befall. Then gently. Sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me one more day to stay But since it fell into my lot That I should rise and you should not I'll gently rise and softly call
Let's see.